There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his wounds, sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham's far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received very good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will also come, they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. And good morning, St. Andrews. My name is Darren. Uh, the joke today is that this proves that I only get given the very difficult passages uh, to preach. Um, we, it is a difficult passage. Uh, do keep it open in front of you. And to understand it, we need God's help. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we, we come to this weighty and difficult and, and troublesome passage that, Lord, can provoke a lot of fear in our hearts. We pray by your Spirit you would Give us soft hearts to listen, ears to hear, Lord, and we would not turn ourselves against you, but would to see, see how you are speaking to your church through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not going to presume that anyone at the 1130 service smokes, but if you do, you might have noticed, as I have, over the last 10 years in Hong Kong, you've seen uh, the warning on cigarette packets has dramatically ramped up in intensity over the last 10 years. When I first came to Hong Kong, um, the, the uh, government health advertisements of why you shouldn't smoke seemed to focus primarily that it might make your skin look older. Uh, and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that's a problem, but it's not the real issue. It seemed to be more appealing to people's vanity. Um, and now today we have terrible images of sicknesses and disease and warnings of how it can affect your health and others and children um, as well. And uh, that's fine. Um, but if, if what you have to decide is, are these government health warnings and the warnings on these boxes, are they out there just to scare us, like some sort of children's fairy tale, or are these trustworthy sayings that participating in this product 
could have very dire consequences indeed. Well, like our passage today in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is being far more direct and blunt than any uh, public health notice as he comes to the heavy and weighty subject of hell. And the question that you have to answer, and as a church we have to answer, is, is Jesus speaking the truth? Is this a trustworthy saying? Or is it just something to scare us into the kingdom of God? You know where I'm from? Uh, there's some churches that seem to take great joy in preaching about hell. I know Christians who seem to rejoice that non-Christians are going there. I think that that's the wrong perspective. Um, But I also know that there's many churches who don't want to talk about this issue at all. Uh, They want to ignore it or deny it. They don't want to to go there um, because it seems that there's so many modern sensibilities today that we're so afraid of offending people or excluding people. Um, And I'd like to propose a better way today because I think a healthy understanding of what this parable is teaching and the doctrine of hell can both give you a better understanding of God's grace and his justice, but also help us answer the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? And I know our children are here today, um, and that's okay, because I know when Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 16, there was a loud, loud crowd, large crowd listening, and there would have been many children and young people there as well, um, to not teach the hard things, to only teach the nice things in the Bible would mean that we're not being faithful in our handling and attention of it. Um, But we do know, you may know, this is, of course, it's a parable. It's not a, he's not reporting on a narrative. And you may know that a parable is a simple spiritual story that packs an important spiritual truth. Simple stories that teach spiritual truths And in it, hopefully, we're going to see that in here there was two men with two destinations and two rescue plans. And, uh, well, the first man, his life seems absolutely fabulous. Verse 19, it tells us he was phenomenally wealthy, fine linen, dressed in purple clothes, and lived in luxury every day. That sounds fantastic. There isn't a day that would go by in his life where he didn't have some sort of feast. He's got this fabulous property with a huge gate. Pick your spot in Hong Kong. There's plenty of them. It seems that this man, he's got the three F's that every Hong Konger wants. He's got food, he's got fashion, and he's got floor space. I wonder (laughs) what, if you could imagine what his life would be like for a day. I wonder where he got his shirts made. Perhaps he had breakfast at the Mandarin, lunch at the Rosewood, and dinner, dinner at the Chairman's. That's his life. And for many, for many in this city, that's the dream. That's the end game. That's the the goal. God has lavished so much blessing and provision on him that he doesn't have a single problem until the day he dies. His life is just one continual success story, one continual trajectory upwards. And Abraham tells him when he's in hell, he says, son, you received your good things while you were alive, while Lazarus did not. And the problem, it seems, is that he hasn't cared for the beggar who is at his grand gate. Even though he knows his name, he passes him, he drives past him every day, for he has shut his heart to him. He's the kind of person who has got it all. He has no need to think about anyone else. His heart is so bent in on itself He has hardened his heart to the poor 
and the vulnerable and the refugee. And in doing so, he has hardened his heart and turned against God. And I would like to make a caveat. I think only incidentally does this passage deal with the issue of wealth. The Bible makes it clear it is not a sin to be wealthy. What is a sin is how you use your wealth and what you do with it. Uh, this man could equally have been a politician misabusing his power or an academic misusing uh, his brains. No, in, instead, I think the warning is universal that everyone has a hand in life and you will be judged according to what you do with it. And this man, well, with his gifts and his blessing, he hasn't acknowledged the gift giver. He's going around saying, my strength, my power, my ability to produce wealth. And he's forgotten that all of this is, is an ability and a gift from God. He's forgotten about God, and therefore he's committed a sin of omission. And well, the second man, well, he couldn't be more different. His three Fs, what does he wear? Where does he eat? Where does he live? Well, we're told what he wears is rather tragic. He's covered in sores, covered in pain, and dogs come to lick them. What does he eat? He searches for food in the rich man's bin. He longs for it, such as his need. And we're told where he lives. Well, of course, he's sprawled. Sprawled at the gates is what we're told. This is a universal and global contrast that everyone understands. You only need to walk down Nathan Road behind me for a few minutes to see a supercar coming up one direction and a cardboard granny pushing her trolley in pain down the other way. Except the contrast is obvious, but there's one difference you might just have missed here. And it's in verse 20. He's named Lazarus. And interestingly, of great biblical and theological significance is that this is the only parable where a character has a name. And Lazarus, in having a name, it shows us that he has an identity, that he's known. And Lazarus, well, it means the, the one who God helps, the person who God helps. And the text is showing us very clearly that here is a man who knows God and is known by God, but it doesn't tell us what he did. It doesn't tell us if he prayed or if his, in his suffering he didn't become bitter or perhaps he led a Bible study for other homeless in the city. We don't know because the parable is not interested in showing us all the details that we might be interested in. What it is interested is the contrast that shows a wealthy man who is not known by God and a poor man who is known and helped by God. And it's a striking reminder that Bible people are not valued by their income. Poverty is no mark of God's displeasure any more than wealth is no mark of his favor and grace. The rich man has hardened his heart and Lazarus is known. And so the question is, who would you rather be? Well, as we decide, Jesus pulls back the, the curtains on eternity as he shows us two destinations. In verse 22, the time came and the beggar died and he was carried to Abraham's side. It's a reminder that life is short. It's a depressing Bible story, for it's the only story where everyone is dead. But it is a reminder of the fragility of life. I did a help, assisted with a funeral on Friday for a 41-year-old. I found it very, very moving. And yet this is what the Bible tells us repeatedly, that life is like a chaff or a mist or a water, a drink of water that's spilt, or a dream, or a sigh, or a grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. Both of these men 
have the same fate. Death comes for us all, but they have two dramatically different destinations after they are buried. And Lazarus, we are told, well, he is taken to Abraham's side or in the authorized version, Abraham's bosom. And you might think, well, Abraham's side doesn't sound very appealing, uh, but of course that would be to miss a great aspect of theology in the Old Testament as Abraham had be- was the greatest figure and his name had become a byword for blessing for God's people in God's presence in God's time. The fullness of joy of um, Old Testament theology wrapped up in this, this image of being in God's presence. And it's a challenge to us because we tend to think of heaven and hell primarily as just arbitrary places where people are sent to spend eternity. But the Bible paints a much different and fuller picture of what heaven is like. For it's not just some place, it is a place, but it's also a perfect place of relationship and God's presence. We're told it's the new heavens and the new earth, a a place where God's people get resurrected and upgraded resurrection bodies, and they will spend eternity in joy and relationship with Him to such a perfect level of intimacy that only the best friendship or the best marriage can give us only a glimpse. Uh, A place where the Bible uses images to describe of a son coming home and being restored or a great wedding feast where the groom sweeps up his bride in tears, Uh, a place where every tear and sadness and disappointment in life will be wiped away. The Bible asks you to think, what's the best moment in your life? Which birthday or wedding or the birth of a child or a grandchild or a holiday or a party? What's your best moment? Multiply it by a billion and you don't even come close to the joy and intimacy and home that we will have in heaven. A place and a presence with God. That's what we're all looking for. We're all looking for a place to call home. That's what the Bible offers. And that's why this concept of hell is so awful. It's why it's so tragic. It's why J.C. Ryle called it the worst passage in Scripture. Because we're showing how it is in such contrast to heaven. Verse 23 we begin to talk, we're told four things about hell. We're told the rich man is there and he's in conscious torment. We're also told that it's full of flames. And verse 26 informs us that there is a chasm and there is no way to cross this chasm. Uh, this striking and, and dreadful language. Tim Keller, he has an anecdote when members of his church would ask him, they'd say, Pastor, is this metaphorical or is Jesus speaking literally? And he would say, well, it's definitely metaphorical. And and the the member would wipe their brow and say, phew, thank goodness. And he'd say, well, it's metaphorical for something that is eternally far worse and awful than any sentence of English could actually describe. Um, And I think I agree with that because the rest of Scripture helps us understand that hell is the opposite of heaven. It's the place where there's no home, no relationship with God, It is the door that is shut closed in the face of the sun. It is the divorce certificate that is delivered as remorse remorse begins. It is the criminal who gets his just deserts and comeuppances. It is the separation eternally of a life with God. And that is awful. Because if Jesus is the bread of life, 
To lose a relationship with him would mean that you would be starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, to lose a relationship with him would mean that you would be in eternal darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, to lose him would mean that you would be eternally lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, to lose Jesus would mean eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, to lose a relationship with him would tragically mean that you would have to pay for your sins yourself. And that's why I think it's far worse than any image or description of a fire. And if you're sitting there now and you're thinking, this, this is awful. How can a loving God say these dreadful things? Well, what you have to remember is who is the one speaking in Luke chapter 16. I know that it was spoken by the most loving man I have ever come across. The man who prayed for those who were killing him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here is Jesus giving us a loving warning, and we have to decide whether he's speaking the truth or not. Jesus is the definitive theologian on hell. And time and time, again in the scriptures, he speaks uh, about it, especially in the book of Matthew. So can I implore you to please let his words offend you today? If you're offended by this, recognize that these are the words of Jesus, not, not mine. And yet tragically, it seems, and especially in the West, it is popular amongst many churches and many clergy men and women to say that there is no hell at all. And I have to agree with Rico Tice, the English evangelist, who says, if you say there is no hell, you are calling Jesus a liar. Because you have to rip chapter 16 of Luke out of the book and say it's never there at all. And yet instead, at the heart of the Christian message is a message that sinners are saved from hell for heaven through the cross. Sinners saved from hell for heaven through the cross. And the only way to end up in this destination is to ignore the cross. That's what the Bible tells us. But thankfully, it is more interested in showing us the tourist brochures uh, uh, for, uh, for the other destination. And as we conclude, we, we see two rescue plans. For the first one doesn't work, but another one is mentioned that does. The rich man, he says, will send Lazarus to my five brothers. They would see someone come back from the dead and, and they would repent. I'm sure he loved his brothers. We all do. I think hell makes us uncomfortable as we think of our friends and family. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he's only interested in gospel proclamation from beyond the grave. Oh, I pray that our church, we would not make the same mistake. We would not leave it too late. But his plan, his solution for his, the predicament of his family is that they could have some sort of supernatural, amazing experience of God. Um, they could see a resurrected man and then they would believe. But Abraham says, no, 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 this isn't going to work. And rather soberly, he says, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. If they haven't listened to them, they're not going to believe this. Not even a man coming back from the dead. This rescue plan doesn't work. And yet we're so quick to do it ourselves, aren't we? We love to think if a, a friend or a colleague could just have this experience or just be convinced by this argument or if they could just come along uh, to, 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 to experience this or this course or this answer or if I was, was more eloquent... They says it doesn't work. No experience other than Jesus' words and works. Jesus' words and works are self-validating and self-evident. But there is another sign that will work. 
And that plan, that rescue plan, is that you do recognize the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about. And what is that? Well, we know that Moses and the prophets is a byword for the Old Testament Bible. And then when Jesus died and he was resurrected, he appeared to the, to the disciples in Luke 24, and he took the Bible in front of him and he said, beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all of these things must be fulfilled concerning myself. What he is saying is the story about Moses and the prophets, that's actually about me. The Bible is about me and my rescue. And the way you get to heaven is by res recognizing the message about me that it tells. And so the dreadful warning in this parable is that we can miss what we have been told about Jesus. Perhaps you have heard it as a youth. Perhaps a friend has dragged you along to St. Andrews today. Perhaps you had a loving grandparent who just read the Bible with you, but you still can't believe or accept it. Hell would be knowing this truth about Jesus from the prophets and Moses too late. The two plans are in contrast. There's a famous uh, Russian novel by Pushkin called uh, Eugene Onegin. And Onegin was a jaded aristocrat. And he's very popular with the ladies. And one young lady fell in love with him called Tatiana. And she wrote a very moving letter to him expressing her love. And uh, well, Eugene wrote back saying, uh, this is very touching, um, but I don't want to get married to you. It would bore me. Uh, it would be an inconvenience to my life. I would soon grow tired of a relationship with you. And uh, many years went past, and he returned to St. Petersburg, and he saw this beautiful woman, this beautiful bride. And of course, you can guess who it was. It was Tatiana, and he pursued her because he had now fallen in love with her, but it was too late. He was married to someone else, and his love and his advances were ultimately rejected. The door was open. There was an offer of love, but then there came a time that it was shut. And it's the same for our parable today. The Bible clearly states there is a time to respond to Jesus's message of forgiveness and relationship. And there is a time will come when that offer is gone. And for many of us, like Eugene Onegin, many of us are like him. We, we say, Jesus, thank you, but no thank you. It's a very touching message, but a relationship with you would just be too inconvenient. I would grow tired of it. It would be boring to me. I'll maybe think about it later. But like Eugene, we will all find out one day that the offer has been retracted. For like the rich man in Lazarus, there will come a day where life ends and our eyes will be open to God in all of his glory. We will see Jesus not as meek and mild, but as the risen conquering king and judge. And at that moment, we will know that all of our greatest treasures will be nothing compared to him. And no one will say on that day, this is unfair. No, we will all know it is true and fair and just as we stand with our mouths open. If we reject him, one day, sadly, he will reject us. But this parable is not just a warning for the believer and the unbeliever. It is also an important encouragement to the believer as it brings us into a deeper understanding of God's grace and God's justice. Modern philosophy is making great advances to try to argue there is no such thing as good or evil in the world. As a Christian, we must disagree with this proposal. For how are you to cope when you see terrible stories or terrible things happen 
around the world or in the news, do we say there's simply no such thing as evil? One of the stories that helped me understand this stunning marriage of grace and justice came in 2008 with the terrible story of a man called Larry Nassar. He was a U.S. Olympic doctor, and he hurt many members of the Olympic team. And one of the women, woman who, women who took him to trial um, stood up in the dock in the courtroom and pleaded with him to turn to Christ. This is what she said at the trial. She said, The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And it is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. What she's saying is there is a stunning blend of justice and grace contained in the gospel. It's both as beautiful as it is scandalous for it shows that men even like Nassar could be forgiven. The crushing weight that she alluded to could be avoided. As she says, justice can and will be paid. The one thing it will not be is ignored, but you don't have to pay it yourself. Jesus Christ can pay it on your behalf. She was saying, even though you are going to jail for a very long time, in that cell, you can find a door to freedom of love and life in Christ. It's the ultimate scandal and it's the ultimate beauty that the worst criminal can be welcomed in and justice will ultimately be done. For you see, what hell shows us is that all evil and injustice in the world will one day be corrected. And I don't know about you, but that is very, very good news. But the good news for Christians is you don't have to pay it yourself because Jesus paid for your sins when he went on the cross. And the Bible brings all of us here today into that story. None of this nonsense that hell is just for really bad people like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Now, the problem is we're too good at comparing ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to God's perfect and holy standard. Hell shows us the danger and the consequences of trying to pay for your own sin. As the Bible shows me my own pride, my own self-centeredness, my own lust, my neglect like the rich man to thank God for the blessings in life and the hand that he has given me. The Bible makes it very clear that all of us unforgiven or deserving of an eternal separation from a holy God. But on the other hand, justice will be done and has been done and is offered to you because of Christ that you can be known and forgiven and more alive and have a home and a future in heaven that nothing can ever take away. He knew Lazarus's name. Lazarus meant the one who God helps. God can help you today. I wonder, do you know if God knows your name? It is the most important question you need to answer. And if you're struggling with it, we'd love to talk to you. If you're offended by Jesus's words, we'd love to speak to you. I'd love to invite you to Christianity Explored on the 14th of September, where we wrestle with some of these big ideas and issues. But nothing can be more important, and we need God's help to see it and believe it and know it is true. Let me pray. Father, we, we do struggle, we, we fear these hard teachings, our minds, our minds worries about them, but Lord, we know that ultimately, Father, this shows us that justice and grace meet on the cross, 
Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, the offer of forgiveness as he pays for the sins of the world. I pray, Father, that you would give us soft hearts to see this, to believe it, and to know it is true. Help us, Father, for the times that we have turned away from inconvenienced truths and give us a passion in our heart, Lord, as we go out into the world this week to share this good news with it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.